Hey everybody, welcome to Best Show Best. This is the best of the best show, the new version of the best show. And for people who don't know, the best show takes place each and every Tuesday night from 9 p.m. till midnight over at thebestshow.net. And if you uh, are new to the program, these are little bite-sized greatest hits samples of what we do every week. So check this out, and if you want more, you can listen to the full three-hour extravaganza and check it out. And if you want to support The Best Show, the way to do that is to uh, download the episodes and to give us reviews on iTunes and to tell people that the show is back and that you like it. So please check out this new episode of Best Show Bests. Is this who I think it is on on uh, Hotline Mike? I'm being told to go to the Hotline that it's uh, that uh, the usual uh, riffraff is not to be attended to right now because on the Hotline we have a uh, a famous person, an author. Uh, uh, Cliff Nesteroff is here with us. Are you there, sir? Yes, the brand new riffraff is here. The new riffraff. How are right. you? I'm very well. I'm very tired. I've been up since 6 a.m., but uh, prepping a show with Robert Smigel and Triumph the Insult Comic Dog tomorrow night, and uh, it's a lot of work. Yeah, that is a lot of work. Well, I don't yeah. know why, why, they, why don't they do it in shifts, the two of them, right? Do they ever? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Triumph is a, is a dog, and it's always difficult working with dogs. It's sure. also, uh, he's also a puppet, and uh, logistically and technically it's very difficult mm-hmm. To work with puppets, because you usually need like a fake brick wall or something for them to perform uh, yes. uh, on top of, you know. Some so. sort of, yes. I don't know how Robert Smigel seems like the planet's number one uh, candidate for some sort of knee surgery because <laughs> everything you see him do triumph and he's on his back and he's at these weird angles. Yeah, and he wears like a, a headset mic sometimes, yeah. like uh, Garth Brooks or something, and uh, that's always kind of a humbling and humiliating thing, I think, for a performer to have to put one of those on. You know, it's really amazing to see if you ever can catch a glimpse of him doing it. It's unbelievable to see. But we're yeah, not well, here to talk about him. We're here to talk about you, Cliff Nesteroff. Damn straight. You, sir. Yes. Are the author of a book called The Comedians. Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy. Now, this book is so great. Congratulations on putting together a book that is so entertaining and really sums up pretty much a a, a century of entertainment, more or less, right? About a century? Yeah, Yeah, it's it's kind of arbitrary, but I tell people it's 100 years of, uh, of comedy. So basically, uh, 1915 to 2015, or 1905 to 2005, it's kind of uh, gray, but more or less 100 years, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it is so entertaining. Every page was either would make me gasp or laugh or shake my head. I could not have, I wish this book was 500 pages longer than it was. Oh, thank you so much. What was something that uh, made you gasp in the book? I'm curious. Well, knowing that the Three Stooges were on Hitler's kill list was one of the early uh, things in the story. I was just like, so so Hitler had a kill list. 
Yeah, that was according to this guy named uh, Elwood Ullman, who wrote and directed a bunch of Three Stooges uh, shorts. He's the uh, the source for that. I do not have a copy of uh, of the Kill List written in German that says, you know, uh, in German writing and then Mo Howard, Curly Howard, or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of us had uh, Joe Besser and Curly Joe on our own personal Kill List. But I have not. Uh, I have not seen the actual uh, letter that Hitler addressed that said uh, we must exterminate the Stooges. But according to one of their writers at uh, Columbia Pictures in the 1940s, this guy Elwood Ullman, he uh, he uh, insists that that is the truth. Mm-hmm. And that was because they had made a couple movies making fun of Hitler. That's right. Yeah, they made one called uh, "You uh, Nazi Spy," N-U-T-Z-Y. You know, a classic Nazi pun. Another one of those. And uh, I forget the other one, but yeah, they did. And apparently Jack Benny, who made uh, To Be or Not To Be uh, for Ernst Lubitsch, was also on that kill list for uh, parodying Hitler. And, uh, and of course, all these guys were, were Jewish to begin with, so they may have been on that kill list uh, regardless of their uh, film comedy. But yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, and that's just one. I'm telling you, every page was entertaining in this book. You know, it's a... a, a let me just give a little bit of context, Cliff. You, sure. you, it's funny, funny that you were, uh, you have a WFMU uh, connection uh, yes. that runs pretty deep. You started writing for the WFMU blog. Yeah, way back, way back. Uh, maybe just a year or two after it started, I started uh, uh, writing stuff uh, frequently. It used to be like a weekly thing where I would just uh, post little uh, embed weird videos that I would find and stuff like that. But slowly but surely, as I realized the uh, wide reach of WFMU's website at that time, I started putting uh, infinitely more effort into things and uh, and writing these elaborate articles. And people would always complain about the uh, the white text on a, back, a black background, uh, which was none of my doing. But uh, I would write these long, long pieces that uh, essentially were almost uh, feature-length magazine articles, but on the Internet. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I did that for, for almost uh, 10 years. And oddly enough, around the same time you left WFMU, uh, was more or less the same time that I left as their uh, website just kind of degraded into uh, nothingness. <laughs> uh, but you, ha- you, you, you wrote some pretty amazing things there. And was that was that you've always been fascinated with with the history of comedy, Cliff? Well, no, not really. I was uh, like a record collector when I was a teenager, so it came out of a fascination when I would go to a thrift store or a record store or a junk store and see the same records by these comedians I'd never heard of, like Rusty Warren and Woody Woodbury and Von Meter's First Family, they would be in every single uh, junk store and record store, and yet I'd never heard of them or seen them on TV or radio or in movies. And I just I couldn't understand why they would be in every record store, yet I'd never heard of them. I just assumed that they must have been famous at some point. And then when I was very young, I learned the story behind Von Meter that he was a JFK impersonator without much of an act. He just sounded like JFK. And these hucksters, these disc jockeys, saw that they could maybe make some money by putting out a JFK parody record in 1961. And uh, sure enough, it was a huge hit, uh, this record, The First Family. It was not only the most uh, successful comedy record of all time at that point, it was the best-selling record of all time up to that point, selling something like 6 million copies in 12 months. Because they they were trying to sell the thing, 
they 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 could not keep it in stock. You could you would actually buy the LP and be told to come back later for the jacket. That's right. They couldn't print the jackets fast enough. They hired extra pressing plants in Jersey to crank them out. Colony Records in New York was like extending their hours, three hours every night, just to deal with the demand and the lines for this record. Nobody had parodied uh, JFK yet, and he was so popular that this record became popular. But Von Meter was basically an amateur comedian from New England. He just had this similar accent to JFK, and he had a similar haircut. So he was kind of thrust into the spotlight before he was ready. He didn't really have much stage experience. He Mm -hmm. just had the voice and the look. So the record comes out. It's a huge hit. They sent him on a countrywide tour. He he played Carnegie Hall, but it was the equivalent of an open micer playing Carnegie Hall. And uh, when I was researching the book, I found this great uh, review and variety of Von Meter at at, uh, Carnegie Hall, and the headline was, Meter Bombs. And the only positive thing in the review was uh, praising his opening act, a guy named Stanley Myron Handelman who was an obscure comedian from the 60s and 70s. Um, but then, of course, JFK got assassinated, and suddenly the guy who had the best-selling record of all time uh, is, is no more. Yeah, he's out of business. Uh, yeah, and they issued a recall. Cadence Records recalled all the LPs uh, uh, first week of December after the assassination, and then Von Meter's, all his bookings were canceled. He was canceled off the Grammy Awards, off a TV show called Hootin' Nanny, the Joey Bishop show. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of affected him mentally. And I learned this later that he was lost, he was trying to reinvent himself, but nobody wanted to listen to him anymore because it reminded them of the assassination. Yeah, yeah. He still kind of had that voice. So he started kind of like ambling around, couldn't get work, apparently started uh, uh, turning into a bit of a hobo. He was eating out of dumpsters. He started doing a lot of peyote. He wandered through the desert, became a born-again Christian, and then eventually moved to Maine and reinvented himself as a country and western piano player. Wow. So yeah. when I learned that story, I was like, good Lord, that's an insane story. So that was one of the things that kind of inspired me to uh, explore some of these old, obscure comedians, because I thought, wow, that's such a bizarre uh, tale that maybe there are more bizarre tales out there. Yeah, and, th- and there are hundreds of them, and... You put them together in this book, The Comedians, which uh, is so entertaining. The um, the album, it's so it's so funny that the comedy album, you just think about it being a part of, of your world when right. you're uh, growing up. Everybody's got that first comedy album they listen to. And uh, but but in your book, it gives you some some insight into how that started and it was such an such a uh, un, such uncharted territory for people but then it turned into just such a such an enormous cash cow for so many people yeah it was a big craze it was sort of like a podcast now are for uh, comedians and uh, comedy records the, the genre is interesting i'm sure all record collectors know that uh, there's all these comedy records from the early 60s by Jonathan Winters and Mort Saul and and uh, the Smothers Brothers, all these people. But um, Mort Saul always takes credit. He says, I was the first guy to have a comedy record. Mm-hmm. Sometimes Shelley Berman takes credit, says, I was the first guy to have a comedy record. But uh, as I uh, uh, map out in my book, the guy who invented uh, uh, comedy records, and by comedy records I mean a recording of a stand-up comedian's act, mm-hmm. I don't mean like Spike Jones novelty uh, records, yeah. um, was uh, Red Fox. In yeah. 1956, Red Fox did the very first stand-up comedy record, it was so successful that his label, Duto, pressed 
19 Red Fox comedy albums between 1956 and 1958, 10 LPs and 4 EPs, before any white comedian did the same. But because he was black, he didn't really get the credit. It was kind of an underground hit. It was sold to the black community. Dolphin uh, Records in South Central Los Angeles was a big uh, provider of that to the community. But Billboard and Cashbox and the white uh, record press didn't really chart it. They didn't really track it. But the big white labels tracked it, Verve, Capital, Warner Brothers. They saw how much money was being made from these Red Fox records, and that's why they got into it and started recording comedians. It was Red Fox and how much money uh, they were making over at Dudo that inspired it. Sure. Dudo Records was really a, an interesting label. The, the guy who ran it, Ducey Williams, the African-American uh, uh, record label proprietor, was able to take a risk uh, recording a stand-up act and releasing it as an experiment because a couple years uh, earlier he made a fucking killing when he put out a very famous doo-wop song we all know called Earth Angel by the mm -hmm. Penguins. Yeah. So that gave him a cushion to go and sign up other people that may or may not have uh, hit with the public. And mm -hmm. Red Fox uh, was one of those. It was an experiment. And uh, the first record was such a huge hit that they started just cranking them out like crazy. Yeah, I'm going to have to ask you. you gotta con you got to watch those... Uh... Those toilet oh, the bombs there. Yeah. The F-bombs. I'm sorry. That's all right. That's all right. I know we're both off WFMU now, but... Uh, yeah, I don't want you to get fired from your own show. Let's watch the F part of FMU. No, I'm kidding. It's all right. Don't, don't, oh, don't worry, Cliff. Oh, thank God. Jesus so, Christ. But let's not do... Please, uh, don't say any more. This is family. I <laughs> the whole family's gathered on the radio, just oh, like yeah, Jack right. Benny. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. That's I know, all right. Yeah. Don't worry. Now, now Cliff... What, with the with the comedy album, um, you, you so it started with Red Fox. Then you had people like like uh, Shelley Berman and, and Bob Newhart and Nichols and May. Kind of everybody jumped on the bandwagon a few years after that. Yeah, and it was such a, it's it's amazing that suddenly careers could be made off of a comedy album without even having the 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 track record. Like Bob Newhart was. Pretty much that was his his calling card, was that first album. Yeah, it was bizarre. Uh, Bob Newhart had never performed in a nightclub before until the night they recorded his comedy record. He had been like a radio guy in Chicago in the late 50s with this guy, Dan Sorkin, and they were kind of like a Bob and Ray ripoff, doing kind of comedy sketches and parodies on radio. And uh, Dan Sorkin had Newhart record uh, uh, like a, a reel to uh, give to the guys at Warner Brothers Records. And they said, oh, that's great. Uh, when's your next gig? We'll record you. And he said, I don't have any gigs. I've never been on stage before. So they booked him in this place in Houston called the Tidelands, which was sort of like, uh, uh, I guess, what New Haven was to Broadway uh, shows. The Tidelands was to new stand-up comics, and they would go and test their material there. And he did three shows in the same night. Uh, the first show they couldn't use because Bob Newhart's voice was trembling and quivering. <laughs> uh, the second show they couldn't use because he was heckled throughout the whole thing by a drunk lady who kept yelling, that's a load of crap, that's a load of crap. And then finally, the third uh, show was the one that they ended up releasing as the button-down mind of Bob Newhart. That is it unbelievable. And it became a huge seller. Yeah. Isn't it yeah, unbelievable yeah. that he, he would have been, if he didn't get that final show... Uh, the, to the to the level that he got it to, we would not know who Bob Newhart was. No, no, and it was interesting. Shelley Berman, who had a comedy record 
out right before Bob Newhart called Inside Shelley Berman, another LP you see in every thrift store uh, these yes. days. He was furious at Bob Newhart, and it's weird their similarities. Bob Newhart did not steal or do Shelley Berman's material, but both kind of broke at the same time. Both were from Chicago. Both did stand up sitting on a stool. Both chain smoked cigarettes. Both did a routine about uh, uh, driving lessons. And both spoke into imaginary telephones. Yeah. It was bizarre, the similarities. And Shelley Berman uh, was very upset when Bob Newhart became a smash on the scene because he felt that uh, Newhart was really uh, uh, stealing his shtick. Yeah, yeah. But it, but you, it re- was it really close enough that it was some version of parallel thought in well, your estimation? I mean, I, well, the thing is, like, if you compare any stand-up comic, like, if there's two guys who do impressions, they're both standing on the stage, they're both speaking into a microphone, they're both doing an impression of Arnold Schwarzenegger, and yet we don't really accuse one guy of ripping off the other guy's act unless he's doing the same jokes. Mm-hmm. So I guess they're, I, Bob Newhart never did any material that belonged to Shelley Berman. So in mm-hmm. that concept, he wasn't a joke thief. Sure. But, uh, but who's to say? It's really uh, uh, hard to tell. Maybe he was yeah. very much influenced, especially considering that he had never performed in a nightclub before, he probably was basing his act on Shelley Berman, kind of observing what a guy who does do nightclubs uh, did, you know. Sure, just seeing so- he saw something that worked, and that's how you do something that works. And he he um, he was following the lead of, of the person who came before him, maybe stylistically or... or... Yeah, it was, it was very common, uh, probably now too, but for comedians who are first starting out to just kind of emulate the person that they admire... And then eventually, when they get good, sort of slowly but surely shed uh, that influence. Uh, there's a story in my book, which might surprise people, about Woody Allen uh, stealing material early yeah. on. Because he was, you know, of course, a cerebral comic. He did well in the uh, East Village in New York. But when he would go to other venues in other cities, he didn't really go over that well. And this one comedian, this elderly man in his 90s, who refused to have his name uh, used in this anecdote, told me this story that uh, when Woody Allen was doing a mainstream room early on and wanted to be a success, he would rip off material from this guy, Will Jordan, who was like a 1950s impressionist who did Ed Sullivan. He also, or Ed Sullivan impressions, but he also did other uh, material. And Woody Allen would steal that guy's act and perform it if his more cerebral stuff wasn't going over. Now, I have no way to verify that Woody Allen stole material, and I found, found that quite surprising. But then I spoke to Marshall Brickman for my book, and Marshall Brickman ghost-wrote Woody Allen stand-up act in those days, and he also co-wrote Sleeper, Annie Hall, and Manhattan with Woody Allen, so he knows him pretty well. And I told him this anecdote that this old man had told me, and Marshall said, uh, yeah, I could believe that. Uh-huh. I could believe that Woody would do that. I can't verify it, but that, that sounds totally plausible. Yeah, so, it, was, it, was, it was a different era where these guys just looked at you did what you had to do to just get either to get by or to get through the next show or to get famous. And jokes seemed like a, more of a communal thing to a lot of these guys. Then it, it's amazing how comedy became so proprietary. And I think, I, I think that's a good thing because yeah. individuality entered into it to where it is where you couldn't just go up and start doing Robert Klein material or, right. Richard Pryor material because it's clearly that person is right. the is the his, his brain experience. behind it. Yeah, well, it was weird in the 1930s and 40s. 
uh, comedians were mostly conformists, and they conformed to whatever the style was. So things like mother-in-law jokes were so common that guys would go up on stage who weren't married and do jokes about their terrible mother-in-law. Mm-hmm. That was just the style in the 30s and 40s, but then in the early 50s, guys like Lenny Bruce, Mort Saul, Jonathan Winters came along, and they sort of coincided with other movements in the arts at the time, uh, in jazz, bop music was kind of revolutionary, and literature, uh, beat literature was experimental, and into the mix came these new comedians who no longer were reciting uh, joke books or using writers, but they were speaking from their own point of view. Mort Saul was speaking about his political opinion. Jonathan Winters was improvising randomly from inside his own head. And Lenny Bruce was, was really um, blazing a new style of comedy. People talk about how he, he you know, spoke with uh, salacious language or talked about religion, but really the reason Lenny Bruce was revolutionary was the style of performance. His early reviews criticized him for rambling because he didn't go up on stage and just tell joke, 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 mm-hmm. like the guys who'd come before. Instead, he was going up on stage and doing what comedians do now, like sort of talking to the audience a little bit, thinking on stage, devising material on stage, talking about what happened in his day and trying to find uh, the funny stuff through the performance within the moment. And that was revolutionary for its time in the early 50s. Before that, it was just guys like Maury Amsterdam and Alan King, and the routines were very set and kind of rang false. You never really knew anything about Maury Amsterdam's real life or Alan King's real life, not that you wanted to, but, yeah. you know, they were very uh, uh, very much by rote, mm-hmm. and they were doing material that anybody, if they memorized it, could go up and do and maybe even get laughs, even if they weren't funny. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, uh, it's an amazing transformation. I, look, I... Uh... I know I, I want to before before I uh, let you go, Cliff Nesteroff. And yeah. again, your book, The Comedians, is I, I find it I, I enjoyed it so much. It's absolutely uh, it's a, it, people cannot go wrong reading. If you have any interest in comedy and the history of comedy, you will. This book is a, a full on revelation. Every every chapter is so great. Um, can you just? Tell me and the audience the story of the Jerry Lewis talk show, which sure. which yeah. you discuss in the book, which I find to, it's to me is one of it's it, it's one of the all time because people talk about oh the Chevy Chase show or right. oh Magic Johnson the Magic Hour and failed <laughs> talk shows, but this was this was the no show will fail. To the right. degree that this, that Jer- the Jerry Lewis talk show failed. Yeah. Well, it was the most expensive talk show failure of all time and adjusted for inflation even more so. It, it was an incredible uh, waste of money. Um, in 1962, before Johnny Carson took over The Tonight Show, Jack Parr had left. He was the second host uh, of The Tonight Show after Steve Allen. Uh, Johnny Carson was signed to ABC. He was hosting a game show. And NBC had signed him to take over The Tonight Show, but ABC wouldn't release him from his contract until the fall, and Jack Parr left in the spring. So in the middle, there were all these guest hosts who filled in, and it was like a who's who of popular culture. And a lot of people that should never be hosting a talk show hosted for a week. Guys like Art Linkletter, Donald O'Connor, um, and then people that maybe should be hosting a talk show, like uh, Merv Griffin, Groucho Marx, all these people filled in for a week. And Jerry Lewis was one of them. And 
he was a huge success as the guest host. He got ratings that Steve Allen and Jack Parr never got. He got the highest ratings in Tonight Show history. Now, NBC already had Johnny Carson tied up, but now they considered, well, maybe we made a mistake. Maybe we should buy out that contract with Carson and take Jerry Lewis instead. But also CBS and ABC were courting Jerry Lewis because they thought, well, he's proving himself as the guest host of The Tonight Show that he can do his own talk show. And he's, so and he's he a was, free agent at this point. Yeah, he was doing movies, but he wasn't doing television. So ABC signed him up in what was an astronomical deal and an unprecedented uh, contract. They gave him full creative control in all departments. But when they held the press conference with the president of ABC, um, they announced that the talk show was going to be two hours long, Saturday <laughs> night, live from uh, 1735 Vine Street, a theater that's still there in Hollywood. They renamed it the Jerry Lewis Theater. They engraved that famous caricature of Jerry Lewis on everything, every doorknob, on the sidewalk out front, on the stairwell, in the bathroom, brass fittings everywhere. They built a balcony outside with a fireplace that had speakers installed <laughs> so you can hear the show from outside. As if the, the crowds would have been, as if it would have been in Jerry's mind, this show's going to be so popular, people will be outside beating on the doors and will pump the audio, will pump the audio to the, to the, to the talk show so they can get something outside I mean, as they're on and, the street outside the theater. And just so preposterous, because even the Ed Sullivan Theater was only renamed that long after Ed Sullivan was dead. Jerry Lewis decides to name the theater the Jerry Lewis Theater, you know. Um, he, he built this weird desk. It cost $40,000 where he could control and do all the directing from his desk if he wanted to change a camera like, shot. He could he override, he could override yeah. the, the booth. He because... could override everything. He built this <laughs> giant green they built a giant screen in the balcony so that uh, the sight lines were improved. They, they put all this techno technological mumbo-jumbo in the theater. And it was a very, very, very expensive thing. And during the press conference, they said, Jerry, what are you going to do for two hours? And he said, well, if, uh, if my guests are loose, I'll be loose. And if my guests are going to argue, I'll argue. Like, it was all really vague. And ABC started to get worried because they were spending millions of dollars. But they signed him to this preposterous 10-year contract. And this is millions of early 60s dollars. Yes, exactly, exactly. It was the first time that ABC, which was still considered the third network, uh, sunk a ton of money into something. So the show premieres uh, the following year in 63, Saturday night. And it's a failure from... From the word go, he comes out, he sings uh, the song, uh, When You're Smiling. He's got his hair uh, glistening with brill cream, one of the sponsors. Uh -huh. And as uh -huh. he's singing, there's this deafening, shrieking feedback that's interrupting everything. And then he goes up there, he tells his first joke, it lands a thud, nobody laughs. And then he taps on the boom mic and says, is this thing on? And nobody laughs at that either. Um, and then they had a bunch of uh, guest cameos, but like they were supposed to come out from the backroom set. The doors wouldn't open. Uh, the red light on each camera that indicates which way the performer is supposed to look, those didn't work. The headsets from the cameraman to the control room stopped working. The screen they installed upstairs for the sight lines didn't work. And so the people in the balcony couldn't see the show. Half of them walked out during the show and then the next morning there were all these vicious reviews in variety 
in TV guides saying that ABC apparently thinks America is interested in listening to a, a egocentric boor ramble for two hours. And it just got worse and worse and worse. At one point, the ABC executives made an anti-Semitic remark and blamed it on Jerry Lewis's quote-unquote Jewishness and told him <laughs> to tone it down. Um, but it was just an insane debacle. Now, he was signed to this enormous contract that was supposed to last several years. The show ended up getting canceled after the uh, 10th episode, and I think a total of 13 aired. By December, it was over. It was done. And it was the most expensive embarrassment. They canceled the show, and they had to buy out his contract. So they paid Jerry Lewis uh, the same amount they would have paid him if he had been on the air for all those years, which never happened. And now they had a vacant theater called the Jerry Lewis Theater with his uh, caricature on everything. And they hired a bunch of construction workers to come in and just scrape off <laughs> all these Jerry Lewis caricatures. And in a pinch, they replaced it with a variety show called The Hollywood Palace, which was sort of like an Ed Sullivan knockoff, which was kind of a brilliant move because they didn't really need a budget for that. They just got stand-up comedians to do a five-minute set and, like, a band to come on and do a song. They, everything was already there, just a band that already had a song and a comic that already had a had an act. And that show ended up lasting five years in the same time <laughs> slot. But, yeah, The Jerry Lewis Show, the most expensive talk show failure in television history. Well... That is one of the hundreds of stories in your book, The Comedians, Cliff Nestoroff. And it is such an entertaining and informative book. And anybody interested in comedy should pick this up. Yes, and, and the book the book is full of F bombs. If you oh, enjoyed the F for tonight if, if, on the if, best show. If this you book, love yeah, if you love the taste more. Cliff gave Cliff gave you a little taste of what's waiting for you in this book. <laughs> so if you get your jollies from reading that word, you have your night cut out for you. Yes, uh, sir. Yeah. In luck, my friends. Seriously, congratulations. This book is so so great. Uh, I can't speak highly enough about it. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Okay, I'll talk to you soon, buddy. Take okay, care. Okay, man. Bye-bye. Right, bye. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to Best Show Best. And I want to thank Martin DeGrell for uh, supervising the episodes. I want to thank Jason Gore, Pat Byrne, Martine Sellis, Brendan McDonald, AP Mike, John Worcester, of course, and you. And once again, listen to The Best Show live each and every Tuesday night on your computer at thebestshow.net. Thanks so much. <laughs>